0: Ooh, I think like Dan, who shared a few minutes ago, I come into today with a pretty full heart. Um, this is a big week for me. I turned 39 on Friday. And uh, again, God is good. Just keeps rolling over, 39. And, uh, and which was uh, not just significant because it was my 39th birthday in a vacuum, but that was also the, the day we landed here in Nelson last year. So the 29th was our, our first day in Nelson, and then the first Sunday of May was my first uh, Sunday as, as senior pastor. And so this kind of today marks uh, my first year, and it's uh, hard to take in. The year's gone by so fast. This community has been so gracious, certainly people within this church, but even people outside in, in the broader community. It's been um my family and I have just really been overwhelmed by the hospitality and the care, and um, it really, in so many ways, uh, feels like home to us. I, I noticed in the first few months that I was here, I kept slipping and saying, oh, back home. I would, I would use that. And now I just say, back, back in Hamilton. Um, when our kids go on vacation, we went to Vancouver, they were like, when are we going home? And they think, Nelson, they think our, our house here. And, and each of you, in a really significant way, through your prayers and support and words of encouragement and, and time with us is really helped us to to feel like we've stepped into a new chapter of our life, which is just beautiful and good. And so I just want to thank you personally on behalf of my whole family. Um, before we get into uh, the message uh, formally this morning, it's the first Sunday of the month and I share my heart, soul, mind, strength growth plan with our church, if this is your first Sunday, that's kind of what I like to do. I like to talk about four areas that I think we always need to be stretching ourselves in loving God with our heart, through relationships and godly relationships, soul, cultivating deeper prayer and worship, mind, learning more about God, about scripture, what it means to follow Him faithfully, and strength, serving and giving. And so these are the things that I have kind of on my heart and, and my spiritual growth plan, and I really encourage you guys to use this as a jumping off point. We all gravitate to certain disciplines and certain things that we're like, yeah, I want to do that. I think what's challenging about this model of discipleship is there might be one or two of these ways of growing that might be easy to us, and there's likely one or two ways that are quite challenging and difficult. And my experience is, if you want to know what it means to be transformed by the love of Jesus, don't Drop those areas or spheres of spiritual growth which don't come naturally to you. I'm a mind type and so it's very easy for me to dive into learning and knowledge. It's a good thing but it's very difficult for me to extend myself and stretch myself in the area of prayer and serving and giving and so it would be easy for me To have a self centered spirituality where I say, well, this is how I'm comfortable loving God in these areas, but not over here. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of intentionality. Who can be bothered? I'm 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 married, I got a young family, I got a busy life. Instead, you have to take the opposite posture, I think. You have to say, we are called to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, heart, I'm really open and asking God to bring about um, some opportunities to invite. Um, spiritual skeptics or seekers to the event on thursday Uh, i didn't really go into it with the quite the intentionality i wish i would have last week but i really want to go into it over these next few days to say god as i'm going about town as i'm connecting and interacting with people who aren't a part of this community give me the courage to say hey this is happening on thursday night you're welcome to come We'd, we'd love to have you it can be something as simple as that but i really want to stretch myself to extend a personal invite Soul, going to go back to John Tyson's Prayer Wheel. I say going back. I've been using it pretty consistently, but I just love it. It's really teaching me how to pray in dimensions of prayer that I'm, I'm weak at and avoid. Uh, Mind, another two books this month. Got through two, uh, almost three last month. Uh, one was okay. One was pretty good. Um, sometimes they're hit or miss, but I try and read them all through just in case the last chapter is like, whoa, worth the price of the book. But one book was like, oh, no, it's just done. Okay, move on. Um, and then strength, uh, fitness training. I've uh, kind of made the decision about two months ago to enter into a pretty intense routine of, of, of physical training, uh, working out, whatever you want to call it. And I did that as a form of repentance because my theology, like I talked about last week, says the body's good, the body's important, we should honor God with our bodies. And yet I find in my stage of life with my kids, there's just a million excuses why I don't take care of myself properly. And it's easy to see that as, well, that just affects me. But it actually doesn't affect me. It affects my capacity to love my family well. It affects my capacity to love this community well. It affects my capacity to love and serve God out of an abundance of energy and clarity. And so for those of us who maybe are maybe a little bit casual in that area, whether it's something as simple as not getting proper rest, not eating healthy, um, not getting some form of exercise 30 to 45 minutes a day, I'd really challenge you to kind of adopt some kind of program, even for you, whatever, whatever a next step of challenge looks like for you, but to see it as a spiritual discipline. Um, sometimes our culture talks about things like that as self-care, and that's not wrong, I'm totally fine with self-care, self-care, but I think that's a little bit reductionistic. It's actually not simply just self-care, it's stewardship of the body. Such that we can then more effectively love and serve other people And so I'm continuing on that on that track and my wife is helping me with that and um, it's going really really well but so Let this be kind of a push to you if there's an area and if and if you don't have ideas for an area You're like I'm totally stuck. I'm stumped. I don't know. I got nothing. I don't even know what I would do in this area Please feel free to connect with me after the service in the middle of the week Um, I have some ideas that might be helpful for you. So never feel like this is a thing that you have to do in isolation. Okay. Talking about marriage today in the context of a series called um, Renew, what does it mean to live in light of the resurrection? We're still in the Easter season. We've got one more week to go. And in this season, we're looking at how, how does the resurrection tangibly change how we live out our faith through different spheres of our life? And we looked at a few, and today we're looking at marriage. I want to give you a bit of a framework for how to think about marriage. I think, it's, I think it's very helpful. It's very simple. But it's also pretty dynamic. If you were to describe the biblical story in three words, which I think you can do, these are the three words that I would use. And these are not my words. I borrow this from solid reformed theology and reformed thinkers. Creation, fall, redemption. The entire scope of the biblical story, everything, that framing, that meta-narrative, creation, fall, redemption, is the summation of the entire plotline of the Bible, the entire plotline of human history. God created a good world. All things were good. Not a dualism where some things were automatically good, some things were automatically mm, lower, evil, lesser. All things were good. Fall. Fall mankind rebels against God and all things become corrupt not just some things all things, our rationality our way we engage in the workforce our interior spaces, our psychology, our relationship dynamics, all of it gets poisoned by sin to a greater or lesser extent, but God has not left us in this pit of, uh, um, uh, of toxicity of sin God is redeeming God is trying to take back and he begins with Abraham and the Jewish people and you fast forward it's all the way through the life and ministry of Jesus and it's through the gospel that God actually does his most restorative work. And the gospel, the good news of Christianity, we've talked about that before, manger, cross, crown, those are kind of three correlates to each of those things. In order for God to redeem a good creation, God has to become part of his creation. God becomes a man, the incarnation. In order to Um, atone for the fall of man man's rebellion man's sinfulness christ comes the god man comes and atones for sin through the cross and in order for redemption to not simply just be an idea but an act of power in and through the world as god establishes his kingdom christ is resurrected and the spirit is poured out on pentecost Christ is now king, and the inauguration of the kingdom has started, and God is establishing his kingdom one day to bring into fulfillment, but right now beginning to seed it out in the lives and hearts of his people in and through the church. And so this this kind of summary overview, creation, fall, redemption, I think is a really good way to think through anything biblically, but this morning, particularly marriage. And this is what I mean by that. Let's start with creation. Foundationally, we want to affirm time and again Marriage is a good gift from God. Everything in scripture points to that from beginning to end. In Genesis 2, from the text that Judith just read, God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to create a helper suitable for him. 21st century readers hear that and they think that's kind of derogatory, helper. Like the man needs an assistant or like a secretary. That's not what it means. The word in Hebrew means helpmate. And it's most commonly referred to, uh, it's most commonly used in the rest of Scripture to refer to God and how God is the helper of people. God is my help, my deliverer, my rescuer. So you have this very ennobling idea that God created man, it's not good for him to be alone. I need to provide someone who we might say is his equal, but more than that, it's someone who brings out and actually helps him become all that he is designed to be and vice versa, a a co-image bearer. He takes a rib from Adam. He makes this woman. Adam sees her. He celebrates. This is bone of my bone. This is this. This is my other half in a sense. This is the kind of creature that is meant for me. None of the other creatures are meant for me. This is the kind of creature that is meant for me and I for her. And then it says in verse 24, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and they felt no shame. See, right from the earliest chapters of the Bible, God wants to make it clear marriage is a good thing. And it's a gift designed to move his creatures into thriving and flourishing. Hebrews thirteen four says, Marriage should be honored by all. That's a command given in the scriptures to the New Testament Church. We should all find ways, whether single or married. Um, separated, divorced, wherever we're at, we should now be moving forward and saying, what does it look like for us to honor marriage in, 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 in its biblical expression? At the heart of the Bible's view of marriage, this idea that two people leave their family of origin and become one flesh is this idea of a covenant. We don't use the word covenant very much in our context, but biblically it's very, very important. It comes up again. Some people kind of think of it as like a really binding commitment. It's like a really serious commitment, which it is. But it's the very thing that lies at the heart of marriage that makes it special and makes it transformative. It's what makes marriage distinctive as a relationship from other friendships, uh, family relationships that are good and wonderful. But there, there's no inference that any other any other relationships that we'll have in our life move us towards this kind of mystical, powerful, transformative, one flesh union. Something unique is happening in and through marriage because marriage is a covenant. A covenant holds together two things that, one of which our culture loves, one of which our culture is kind of, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about that. The two things are love and law. A covenant is a, is a, is a perfect holding together of the dynamic tension of love and law. A covenant isn't just, I'm committing my life to you because I love you. And it's, it's saying, I love you enough that I'm going to contractually commit. I'm going to enter into this whole person contract so that you understand this isn't simply sentimentality that I'm, that I'm referring to. I'm committing, and pledging my life to you. So a covenant is more binding and it's more serious, it's got more grit and it's got more teeth than simply a, uh, someone who would say, well, I don't understand why people would need to get married. Like marriage to me is just like state sanctioned thing. It's a little piece of paper. That doesn't matter. I, I, I love this person. That's all, um, that's all we need. That's all this person needs. And the Bible says that way of thinking is actually an incomplete and an, um, inadequate view of what it means to actually love and commit to something. A covenant is more binding than simply a relationship built on love, but it's way more loving than just a contractual obligation. Here's Jeff, here are my strengths and weaknesses, this is what I'm bringing to the table, here's Heather, here are yours, that's good, we can see kind of alignment of values and goals, that's good. You think if we work together, if we kind of work out a deal, we can figure out a way to advance our goals, see our ambitions happen, sign on the dotted line, good, shake on it, excellent, wonderful, let's move forward in our lives. That's not really a covenant either covenant has this sense of love and this drawing together that the man sees the woman for the first time right we know why he named her woman right because god gives him the power to name he just he sees this creature in front of him and he's like whoa man Whoa. whoa right there is this attraction this there is this um in the best sense of the word, uh, erotic sexual attractional energy that says, this is, this is a creature that's different from me, but yet similar, and I want to be one with this creature. There's, there's something mystical and powerful and, and beautiful in this relationship. It's more than just a contract. It's a covenant that's designed to hold people together in a commitment such that over time they become one flesh. And that one flesh is never really spelled out in scripture. It's left very mysterious. You never get to a point where it says, oh, this is exactly what it looks like. But it's meant to lead us into a mystery. There's something mysterious and beautiful and powerful about the nature of marriage and what it does to people. And it's something deeper than just two people agreeing to live lives in kind of parallel tracks, moving towards a goal. It's a fusion of two lives. It's a fusion of two identities. The man leaves his father and mother. This is my family of origin. This was their values. This is how they express themselves. That's fine. I'll take the good from it. I'll uh, hopefully put the death the bad. But I'm leaving that behind. I'm not trying to move this relationship back into that system. I'm creating a new kind of life with this person. And it's a context that God says, I want, my design has always been that a man and a woman could be naked with each other and not ashamed. Physically, obviously, but also emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Marriage is to be the ultimate safe space of support and encouragement where the marriage spouse looks at you and sees who you are as an image bearer and delights in you and can encourage you and support you and brings out the best in you. Children grow within that context to see the image of God reflected in different but complementary ways between the female image bearer and the male image bearer, and they grew up with a strong sense of coherent identity within God's universe, and then it repeats. So, marriage is so central and is so centrally a good thing that the metaphor comes up throughout the Bible again and again and again. God is constantly referring to the kind of relationship he has with his people as within the context of marriage, that Israel is is my bride and I am the groom and you've committed adultery on me, but I'm going to woo you back. I'm going to uh, reseduce you because I love you, because I'm jealous for you. There's all this fiery, passionate marriage covenantal language that has in its root this idea of the man and the woman in the garden, naked, not ashamed, wanting to become one flesh. It's even the metaphor that the scripture uses for God's ultimate intention for the cosmos. In Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth come, and the new heavens descend and be and join, become one. There's no longer any division between what we would think of as the spiritual realm and the and our earthly realm. There's a complete fusion. The two become one flesh. Now the dwelling of God is with man in an unadulterated, un- unrestricted way. There's no interference. It's glorious. Jesus refers to this as, as the celebration. When the kingdom fully comes, the way we inaugurate it in the future is going to be there's going to be a wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus and his, and his, his bride, the church, you know, we're often called to obedience as, as, as a bride prepares for marriage to her betrothed who's coming to get her. Marriage is such a beautiful, good thing. Marriage is designed to intensify love, to intensify flourishing within the world, and to be a conduit through which we reveal in a unique way God's love and grace and faithfulness and covenantal love for his creation within that union of a man and a woman marriage is a good gift from God now what I just said for many of us is going to um, there might be some kind of mental pushback though because let's be honest that's not often the experience of marriage day after day on the ground level in our lives especially if you've been married for some time, probably more than like a month, um, you realize, oh, wait a second, covenantal, naked, not ashamed, image-bearing, flourishing, thriving, loving, safety, support, care, that is, that's a really either naive or, (laughs) you're just like, that doesn't fit my experience, maybe of my marriage, At least not in a kind of comprehensive way. It's often not like that. And marriages that I know of, even marriages that I would say are good marriages, are often very difficult, very trying, full of suffering and hardship. What's going on? Well, this is where that second word comes in. Because the story of marriage isn't just God created it good. Full stop. It's fall. It's marriage is sinful. It's full of sin because of man's rebellion. The Bible's really, really honest about this. One of the best lines Paul drops in all of Scripture is First Corinthians seven twenty-eight. He's had questions about uh, new Christians who have said, "Well, if Jesus is coming back, should I bother to get married? Like, is it is that an obligation, or is it sinful for me to get get married? Like, am I being selfish to do that? Should I just remain unmarried and just serve the Lord like a hundred percent without distractions?" And in one of the most honest and I think just hilarious. Uh, Uh, candid moments, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, let's not forget that, says this. Listen, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. It's not a wrong thing to get married. That's a good thing. But guys, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. (laughs) And I want to spare you this. That's what he says. (laughs) He's like, you can go ahead and get married, I just want you to know what you're getting in for. Because if you think that marriage is going to make your life easier, you might want to rethink this. Marriage will add to the problems in your life. And I want to spare you that. Bible's very honest to say, although marriage is a good gift from God, it is broken and it is corrupted. And it's not happily ever after into the sunset. It is heartache and pain and betrayal and confusion and misunderstandings. Marriage isn't a covenant of perpetual love and support and grace and friendship. In fact, it can be one of the hardest, most complex, most confusing, most heart-wrenching relationships in our lives. And that's because we enter into marriage as sinful people, as broken people. We enter into marriage, even though marriage is foundationally good, those foundations are cracked because of our brokenness. Sin is sunk into our hearts and the reality is we move into marriage often with a very self-centered understanding of what marriage is supposed to be and how we're supposed to act in marriage. And the evidence of the fall of sinful humanities, I mean, there's, there's thousands of expressions of brokenness in marriage. But I want to talk about two at kind of a higher level. The first is how sin ch- has fundamentally corrupted our understanding of the purpose of marriage, and our sin has fundamentally corrupted our understanding of how we're supposed to practice or what it means to practice marriage, um, live as a husband or as a wife. So, number one, the curse of sin has corrupted our understanding of the purpose of marriage. What is marriage for? Like, what's the what's the point? What's the end goal? What's the telos of marriage? I think there's only two ways of fundamentally seeing the end result of marriage, where the whole thing is supposed to go. It's either a consumer relationship that is supposed to benefit you, or it's a covenantal relationship that is supposed to glorify God and benefit other people. Those are two things. It's either a consumer relationship or it's a covenantal one. Now, covenant relationship, remember, is love and law together. It's a commitment to love and serve the other people, even even at great cost to yourself, you love and serve them as a reflection of God's covenantal to love towards us. It's not primarily concerned with what's in it for me. It's how do I reveal and express God's covenant love and faithfulness and passion towards this person. For richer or poorer, in sickness or in health, for better or for worse. A consumer relationship in, is one in which there is a commitment to love and serve the other person, even at great cost to yourself as long as there is an equitable return on investment. That's a consumer relationship. I build into this as long as I'm getting some my fair shake. And sin has corrupted our understanding of marriage in that, I think especially in our context, many people, maybe many of us, as Christians even, that was the foundational starting point with which we Uh, entered into our marriage. Maybe it's the principle through which we still practice our marriage. Marriage isn't actually, we never really understood it as something covenantal in nature, about self-giving to the benefit of flourishing with the other. It was about, well, yeah, I want to be in this because I think this is going to help enhance my life. This is going to keep me from trouble, not create more trouble. It's going to lead to life and flourishing. And then what happens is when the marriage stops working we begin to pull back and we begin to wonder, well, I don't know if I want to be a part of this anymore. As a consumer, I was totally in this as long as my needs were being met. Now my needs aren't being met, haven't been met for a long time on all these levels. So maybe I have the right to retract from this. In a consumer relationship, that makes a lot of sense. I go to this service provider, they provide me a service. As long as they keep providing the service, I'm happy. Once they don't, Don't I have the right to say, oh, I'll take my money elsewhere. I'll spend my energy elsewhere. I'm going to go over here now. Because the nature of this relationship was built on what's coming back and benefiting me. But marriage is never designed to work like that. It was designed to be covenantal in nature. And yet, if you ask people today, I think that's how a lot of people, even unconsciously, view and and, and live within their marriages. Marriage is a partnership through which I find happiness and personal fulfillment. Marriage is the thing that is supposed to be a huge benefit to me on the level of happiness and warm fuzzies and feelings and the experience of, oh, this is great. This is freeing my life of troubles and of obligations. I think that view is dominant. But that's not what God intended. And if we try and use marriage in that way, whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to be profoundly disillusioned and disappointed. You're going to be miserable. Because as someone said, marriage is not designed to make you happy. There's lots of happiness in marriage, don't get me wrong, but its it's primary function is not to make you happy its primary function is to make you holy. It is to make you like God in your ability to love the other person, to forgive. I heard someone once say one of the most challenging scriptures as it relates to marriage is Jesus' command to love your enemy. There are times where it feels like your spouse is your enemy. Marriage is the place of intense discipleship where you are being called to learn what it means to clothe yourselves with Christ and to love this person in a way that will cause you constantly to say, wow, loving this person, this very imperfect person, I see more and more of their flaws the longer I live with them, is very difficult. Yes, that's, that's right. Imagine how, but how much greater then do we understand God's love for us? That this God continues to pursue us even though there's nothing in it for him outside of the relationship. God is not in a consumer relationship with us. You fulfill your things. You do what you need to do. You, I'll track with you. I'll love you. Once you stop following through, see ya. Our God isn't, doesn't operate that way. He creates covenants. And he says, I will love you even if it means the death of me. I will love you even if it means the death of me. I will pursue you. I will love you. I will not give up on you. Even if you're hard-hearted and stubborn and stupid and selfish, I will keep wooing you back to me because I love you. I'm jealous for you. I'm zealous for your love. You're precious to me. Marriage is not designed to make us happy. It's designed to make us holy because that's what covenants do. God creates covenants with his people, and all the covenants are always kind of um, framed within this context of, so be holy because I'm holy grow into what it means to be an image bearer and so marriage the power of marriage comes from holding two people together long enough in this commitment so that they're forced to grow up out of egocentrism you're forced to grow up out of self-serving ways and you're forced to say how do I learn to glorify God in and through my marriage and to pour my energy in such a way that my spouse finds life and flourishing but the curse of sin has also corrupted our practice within marriage, not just our understanding of it, but we go into it as broken people. And so we engage in all kinds of ways every day, big, ways big and small that are dysfunctional and hurtful. In thought, word, and deed, we have postures towards our spouse which are often tremendously selfish, they're unkind, often very ungracious. Walls of resentment and bitterness can build up. Distance between things that have been said, distance that is created from things that have been left unsaid. See, marriage is this relationship that exposes you, yes, to the unique expression of sinfulness and constellation of sinfulness within your spouse. But if you're paying attention, even more so it amplifies your own selfishness and sinfulness. In general... I think it's easy for a lot of people to see themselves as functionally pretty selfless, caring people until they get married. And then when you're married, even when you adjust to that, you're kind of like, I think I'm pretty pretty solid. And then you have kids. And all these movements in life continually confront you and amplify the actual sinfulness that's there. And your desire to have things the way you want them and your desire for this to benefit me. And you're constantly meeting these headwaters where you have to choose between, okay, which way are you going to go? Are you going to be angry and disillusioned and upset and throw a tantrum because this isn't working for you? Or are you going to go deeper in terms of what it means to love and care for um, the spouse and then eventually for children who, newsflash, there's not going to be a lot of return on investment for you? If you think marriage is tough you know, children is that next level of selfless service. Because you're just giving 99.9% of the time and often without even a thank you. It won't be long in any relationship, especially ones that are founded on a consumeristic mindset where people become very, very bitter and angry. Marriages, when when the foundation of a marriage is a consumer relationship I'm going into this because I expect it to lead to personal happiness and fulfillment to me, all marriages tend to be, I think, are incubators of discontent. It'll just slow burn, it'll just start at some point you'll say, I really don't like my life, and there'll be very real temptation to walk away from it, to separate, to divorce, to move away, because this isn't doing what you thought it was supposed to do But it's actually doing exactly what it was designed to do. To move you out of the center and say, you at the center of this thing is not going to work. You're going to need to replace center." What's the center supposed to be? Well, as Christians, we have that answer. It's supposed to be Christ. And then learning from Christ how to live in covenantal relationship with our spouses the way God has designed and lives in covenant relationship with us. So to a greater or lesser extent, all of our marriages are marked by a sinful understanding. We're we're married to sinful people. Um, A quote that I think is really funny comes from Stanley Hauros. He's a professor at Duke, and he kind of reflects on this idea, especially the modern notion that, well, yeah, some marriages are like that, Jeff, but if you marry the right person, if you find your soulmate, if you can find that, that one true love where there's great simpatico, and probably in our culture, like, you know, just perfect sexual chemistry, then you don't have to be resigned to that kind of marriage. That kind of marriage can work. But the reason why a lot of marriages don't work is that you marry the wrong person. So if you have to, you have to do, just do a better job at finding the right person. And he says this. He says, the assumption that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find that just right person, this overlooks a crucial, crucial fact. And that fact is this we always marry the wrong person. We never, know it is. we never know who it is that we marry. We just think we do. And even if you do marry the right person, you just wait a little while, and he or she is going to change. Because marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that you will not be able to stay the same person after entering into it that you were before. We never marry the right person. To a greater or lesser extent, all of our marriages are marked by a sinful understanding of what marriage is and our practice within it. But thank God that is not the end of the story. The story does not end. God created marriage good, but we've really messed it up, and now marriage is just a really awkward mix of some beautiful moments with a lot of heartache and suffering and purposelessness and disappointment. That is not the end of the story. Redemption is the third act of the biblical drama. God wants to redeem and restore all things in and through Jesus, including our marriages, especially our marriages, because they offer you a unique window into God's covenantal love for His people. He wants to restore marriages to what they were intended to be. And the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, gives us a new and living hope through which we can pursue that redemption. We can participate with God. So, how do we do that? How do we participate with God in the redemption of our marriages? Because I think it's possible. Even in marriages where there's decades of hardened hearts and calcified attitudes and postures that are dismissive and rude and uncharitable, there's hope for every marriage in Christ. If the kingdom of God is being established here and now, and God wants to bring to life new creation, how can we ensure that our marriages are swept up in that momentum? How do we make sure our marriages are part of that? Three things really quickly. Number one, we have to adopt a new posture. Ephesians 5.21, before Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So number one, you have to have a posture of submission. You can't. You cannot have a Christian marriage and the fruit of a Christian marriage without being in submission to Christ. That may seem obvious, but I just want to make sure that's clear. Marriage is not just about a bunch of little principles, and if you learn to do them, you can have the fruit of a Christian marriage. You have to be in submission to Christ, and you have to be in submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. Some of you are not married to a believer. You still need to live in a way that you are submitting to that person out of reverence for Christ. You can still do that. You don't need the other person to do that uh, towards you. Now, what does that look like? That is a whole sermon series. But what would be good today, as an individual or as a couple, is to come before Christ and say, Jesus, I want to give you my marriage. I want to begin submission to you. I want to submit and operate out of your covenant to love towards this person. I don't have the faintest idea of what that might look like, but I want to learn. I want to grow. Will you challenge me, God? submit to Christ, submit to one another. So a new posture of submission and humility that maybe you need to rethink this whole entire marriage thing. Heather and I have been working through a book that's been really, really helpful for us. The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. It's um, not a quick read. It's very dense, but it is powerful. And maybe for you, and, and we're reading through this and we're like, how come no one told us this? We're like 16 years marriage, married. And We're reading stuff here that we're like, wow, this would have been really helpful to know like 16 years ago, 17 years ago, 20 years ago. I would have taken one year ago. But we're learning it now. So wherever you are, just begin learning now. How do I operate out of a new posture? Number two, new practices. Um, I had a bunch of stuff to say here. I'm just going to leave it with this. When is the last time, honestly, in your marriage, just within the context of your marriage, you have confessed a sin, a posture, a habit of the heart towards your spouse that is wrong and you've actively tried to repent of it? When is the last time you've honestly confessed a way of living that you say, I've been treating you this way, I've been harboring these thoughts towards you, I've been acting, this is wrong? And not just confession, but repentance. And I'm actively going to go in the other direction. I'm going to begin learning from God in this area to do this more faithfully a lot of marriages buckle and break under the weight of spouses confessing each other's sins that's not what I'm talking about we're very good at confessing our spouse's sins this is about when's the last time you confessed your own sin when's the last time you said search me o oh god in terms of my relationship with heather and god if there is an offensive way in me bring it to light help me to go to heather and say i confess god showed me this it's hard for me to even say this and admit this but it's wrong and not just i'm sorry shoulder shrug, I'm going to repent. This is my plan of action to begin growing in a different direction. Again, Colossians 3, 5 to 15. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Put to death therefore these things in your marriage, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry. You're like, well Jeff, that's not, a, that's not one of the marriage passages. Paul was just talking to the church. Yeah, this still applies to your marriage. This, these are still things you need to put to death within the most foundational relationship in your life You still need to clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, humility, gentleness, patience. You still need to bear with your spouse, to forgive them as the Lord forgave you, to put on virtues, put on love over all things, which binds everything together so that the peace of Christ can rule in your marriage. So new posture, new practices. What are those new practices that you need to do? And thirdly is a new purpose. Uh, This is important. In light of the resurrection, Jesus has a particular purpose and plan for marriage within his kingdom. The Bible is very honest. You don't need to get married in order to be used by God. Paul makes that very clear to New Testament Christians. If you get married, great. You're going to have extra trouble. But you can still serve the Lord that way. I'd prefer if you didn't and you could serve uh, God as a single person. But both are totally fine. So you don't need marriage be a godly, flourishing, um, effective Christian. But if you are married, God has a plan and purpose for your marriage. And God has brought the two of you together, two unique image bearers together in order to use you to creatively shape the world here and now for his glory. Not, to, not just to partner together to kind of li- live a life and build a life in whatever way you think. God has a mission and a purpose for your marriage, a way that the two of you as a one flesh union are uniquely going to reflect God's glory. And my question is, you know, do we know what that is for our marriages? Have we even asked God? Has it even occurred to us to humble ourselves before God on our knees and say, God, is there something special you want to do in and through our marriage for your glory, for the good of the world? That's an important question everybody at every stage of marriage needs to ask. But it's especially important for those of you who are moving into an empty nest stage of your life. As many of you in our congregation i have talked to. And the margins of your life are beginning to open up. And you've put in a good way, in a God-glorifying way, lots of energy into raising a family. And now those margins are widening. This is a really critical time for you to be praying together as a couple and saying, God. Not just what do you have for me, but what do you have for us? And at least giving God the space to open up something that is challenging and that allows you to move into a greater kingdom mission than just empty nesting, kind of coasting into retirement, and then putting things in neutral. I think God would amaze and delight and challenge all of us if we, if we just asked for a vision for how he wants to use our marriages. Your marriage is a unique vehicle through which you can glorify God. Your marriage is subsumed into the Great Commission to go into the world make disciples. How might God be seeking to use your marriage? Not just each of you within your marriage, but your marriage as a whole. Commit it to prayer and ask God for guidance. Have you given your marriage to Jesus? Are you living in submission to Christ? That is the starting point. I mean that's just that's one on one. That's foundation for all of us. Have we honestly done that? What would it look like for us to go back to our spouses this afternoon this evening and just pray together? Even for 2 or 3 minutes. Let's 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 commit ourselves to the Lord for this next season of our life. If we do, yes, we're going to find that marriage is still challenging and difficult it's not smooth sailing but we are going to see god at work we're going to see signs and life and new creation of the kingdom breaking through not just in our lives but also in our marriage and then we'll find and discover that our marriages are indeed being swept up into god's redemptive momentum and that is a life that i don't want any of us to miss let's pray god as we close our time worshiping you um Would you just teach us what we need to be taught in and through um, this text and and, and this idea and these themes, God? Would you impress on us um, where we need to have a contrite heart before you and confess and repent of sin? Would you teach us within our marriages to love our spouses well and deeply and passionately in a way that reflects your love and, and and the depth of your commitment and your passion towards us and regardless of where we are uh, whether married or not would you teach us what it looks like as a church and as a people to uh, hold marriage and honor to respect it and to revere it, revere it as a special vehicle through which your redemptive purposes can flow in jesus name amen